I'm Matt Dawson and welcome to OrthoScience Bites. Today I'm joined by Sue Johnson. Sue is the Director of Clinical Education at Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin and serves as Director of Versity's Specialist in Blood Banking SBB program. Her experience includes Director and Adjunct Associate Professor at Marquette University Graduate School Transfusion Medicine program, Clinical Associate Professor at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee College of Health Sciences, Associate Director of Indian Hematology Initiative. Sue has also authored numerous publications in the field of transfusion medicine and immunohematology and is an established lecturer on the topic of immunohematology. She currently chairs the AABB Publications Committee and has taken an active role in the education of medical laboratory science students for more than 20 years. And her knowledge in the RH blood group system is globally renowned. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sue. Well, thank you for having me. We'll start with a simple topic. Uh, can you help us understand the difference between weak D and partial D as it comes to identifying a person as RHD negative or RHD positive? Sure. So I'm actually going to build off of what my, my good friend Tony Casina uh, started in talking about weak D versus partial D. And he used the analogy of the Reese's Pieces, the, uh, the candies. Uh, so when we think about Reese's pieces, we know there's orange pieces, yellow pieces, and brown pieces. And he gave a great explanation of the weak D and how there's less amount of the Reese's pieces in general, um, so low levels. When we talk about a partial D, a partial D is actually thinking about um, the fact that we're actually missing a piece of the D protein, the RHD protein. So in, in terms of the Reese's pieces, imagine that you ate all of the yellow pieces. So what happens is now you're missing D yellow or the Reese's yellow piece. And if you're missing that, then that means that if you are exposed to an individual that has normal RHD protein, which has the yellow, orange, and brown pieces, you're going to recognize that yellow piece as being foreign so that you're then able to make an antibody to that D yellow piece. Now, of course, um, when we do our antibody identification, we're gonna test against normal RHD positive individuals that have normal RHD protein, they have that potentially yellow piece so that it looks like your patient has made an anti-D. Uh, so it's a nice way to just distinguish um, the difference between a weak D and a partial D. Now, again, the important thing about partial D is that these individuals are at risk of making an alloanti-D because they're missing a portion of the RHD protein that normal people would have. Great, and I love that you continued that analogy on the Reese's pieces. Um, so, so what do we know about how much, how many partial Ds exist, and, and why is partial D six specifically often referenced so much in literature or manufacturer instructions for use? There are so in, in terms of partial Ds, we know that there are greater than a hundred and twenty alterations in the in the RHD gene that have been um, described. And you know there's going to be a lot more. Um, we just don't know about them yet. Uh, so there's there's many. Um, and most of the time these alterations are um, hybrid genes where there's a portion of the RHD and the RHCE gene that um, 
interact so that you have you really do have a piece of RHD, a piece of RHCE, and maybe another piece of RHD. And when we talk about D6, partial D6, that's actually what occurs is it's a hybrid gene. Um, so again, missing a piece of the D protein, normal D protein. Um, the reason that um, it's referenced a lot is that it is the most common partial D in people of European ancestry. And in fact, I always say um, it's one that's gotten the press. There's been um, two case reports in the literature of Hydrops fatalis due to a partial D6 mom who made anti-D. And the first was actually discovered in 1983. It was a fatal case. And the second was in 2003, so uh, many years later. But both have been described. And there are others now that are in the literature, but it's it's at a much smaller rate. And um, the D6 really has been the one that's gotten the attention. Fabulous. And so, so what are the implications then of actually transfusing a blood unit with partial D to a patient who's RHD negative? It's a great question. And, and the reason is because even though people with a partial D have not quite normal D and they're missing a piece of the RHD protein, it's possible that if an individual is RH negative, they could make anti-D because they are going to see that partial RHD protein is foreign, even if it doesn't have all the normal epitopes or normal pieces. We know that, for example, there's, there's 32 to 35 amino acid differences between RHD and RHCE, so meaning that if you're RHD negative, you're going to be exposed to maybe you know, 30 differences, right, if you get a partial D. So that's a large number of differences in the protein that an individual CS4 in. And it does explain why, you know, it's, it's very possible that those individuals could make anti-D. So this is really interesting. You were talking about how if a patient is D negative and they get then this partial D, uh, that could cause a problem. So could you share with us then um, the challenges and benefits of automation detection of RHD in donors and patients? Specifically, if you think about it, both the standard D and the, uh, the partials and variants. Sure, that's a, um, a great question. Um, when we, we think about detecting the D antigen or the D protein, right? And because we know we have weak D and partial Ds, it's definitely a challenge. So if we just start with the fact that we have 20 FDA licensed anti-D reagents, it's wonderful. I love it because I remember a time when we didn't, we only had a couple. Um, but what that does is lead to variability in detecting the weak and partial D um, antigens or proteins. Um, so regardless of what method we're using, if it's tube methods, column agglutination or hemagglutination. And, and what makes it a challenge is that each anti-D is formulated a little bit differently. We have human source and monoclonal, we have IgM and IgG, uh, depends on the clone we're using as well as the, I always call them the secret ingredients, you know, what potentiators, diluents are in that particular anti-D reagent. So that causes some variability no matter what method we use. And again, the method makes a difference. Um, column agglutination, whether it's gel or glass beads internationally, 
uh, hemagglutination and microplates um, is used in our uh, solid phase methods, automation methods, and the PK7400 that's used in donor testing. Um, so that adds some variability. And then automation itself is wonderful. But the challenge, right, um, well, the positive is that it's automated. So it's taking the, um, the interpretation phase, the shaking a test tube, for example, or reading a column. Um, it's taking that out by the laboratory scientists. But the, the downside of that is it's automated from the fact that the instrument is going to read it for you, and it's design, designed to automatically interpret those results with a camera or optical density, um, and that's set up by the manufacturer, right? So there's no variation in it. And maybe if an individual has a weak D antigen, maybe the way that the instrument is set up may not be quite um, the right way to detect that, that weak agglutination. And if we're talking about a hemagglutination method where um, the instrument actually agitates, it agitates at a preset time and direction even. So again, a weaker agglutination reaction may not be detected. Um, and column, right, is set at a specific centrifugation time. And again, the instrument's going to read at a specific, um, uh, in a specific way. So it's good there's positives and then there's challenges and and that really has to do with the fact that that rhd protein is so difficult to detect at, at times and it depends on the individual and the type of weak d or partial d it is so so knowing that and some of the the strengths and the weaknesses you know there's also now an increasing number of of partial d and d6 assays that are available to specifically target those patients or those, those antigens. Uh, knowing that, you know, what do you think are appropriate clinical indications of when, what patient types or what donor types do you think it's appropriate to do sort of more extended testing to better identify these weaker partial D variants? Hmm, great question. Um, so I'm thinking about this. You're correct. There are some assays now, reagents now, that are available to differentiate, say, a partial D6 from everything else, which is great because we know that that's um, common. And if you're a donor, we want to be able to detect those. Um, if you're a patient, we'd rather call you RHD negative if you're D6. Um, that's great. The challenge is that there are many other partial Ds um, that we can't do that yet. Um, and so I think as, as that capability begins to happen, that'll be the best because we're not quite there. Uh, we don't have the anti-D reagents that are reliably able to do that. Like, for example, always um, determine who's a D3A, for example. Um, and, you know, we're, we actually are, have been doing a study looking at um, genotypically characterized uh, partial and weak Ds and testing them against all the different anti-D reagents. And um, I can tell you that there's no consistency <laughs> so far. Um, that, that one can be three plus and another one can be negative with the exact same donor, with the exact same type. Um, so there's a great amount of variability. 
All right, so before we close things up, um, are there any favorite papers or literature that you think are really good for people that want to dig more into this topic? Sure. The um, Well, the one, the, the actual, the AABB technical manual, um, the RH chapter in the 20th edition is um, really nice, and it's a great description of the weak D, partial D. Um, it also, um, a couple of um, commentaries that have been out, on typing serologic weak D individuals and then thinking, considering genotyping, which we didn't even really talk about, um, that are both in transfusion. And the final one is actually a nice um, uh, paper that just came out at the beginning of the year is the impact of RHD genotyping on transfusion practice. Um, and if you're ever interested in just learning more or saying, you know, how many weak D types are there? I always send people to the ISBT website, um, the Red Cell Immunogenetics and Blood Group Terminology. Um, and Tony mentioned the, the rhesus base info. Um, great places just to say how many are there, right? And, and seeing what the mutations are. Oh, fabulous. Well, hey, so that's going to probably think bring us to the end of our conversation. So again, Sue, I want to thank you so much for for taking your time out of your busy schedule to speak with us and to speak with our listeners. So again, thank you very much. You are very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Great. So I hope everyone enjoyed listening to this podcast about how we can manage partial D in donors and patients. Uh, please be sure to review the sections within this podcast for descriptions and some of the reading materials that were suggested. Uh, you'll some find some additional materials for your further learning and education. So based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with our pop quiz. What's the difference between weak D and partial D? And you are allowed to use Reese's Pieces to help you. Uh, so you can always go back and listen again if you missed it. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, please subscribe to the Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we will be discussing more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years, because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and safe.